We have a significant portion of scripture to read this morning. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 through 55. Genesis 31 at verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I of that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt, felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods what you have found that what you have you found of all your household goods. Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was worn, torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, 
I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, in the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed." God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they are there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mitzpah, For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over the heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, and the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country, and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. So why do we do this? Why do we read these long passages together? That was a long one today. Well, first of all, we do it because the Bible says to not forsake and, and stop reading the public scripture, but read it publicly. The Bible says to do this, to read scripture publicly. The second thing is, when was the last time you read this story? <laughs> Probably a while. Maybe you read it to prepare for today. But nonetheless, we all need to hear it because this is what we're about here, the text, the word of God. And if we don't know the story and hear it together, how will we unpack it together? And I also love the idea that by the end of this series, the entire book of Genesis will be read in this sanctuary amongst the gathered church, because that's who we are when we gather. We'll be working our way through this series, Genesis, The Life of Jacob, A Story of Struggle and Grace, and we enter back into the flight of Jacob now. Rachel, Leah, and the rest of the family and their possessions. If you remember last Sunday, Jacob was double-crossed again by Laban as the deal they had made over sheep and goats was abandoned by Laban. However, over a six-year period, God provided for Jacob, didn't he? And as chapter 30 ends with this statement, it said this, Thus the man increased greatly, that's Jacob, 
had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. And finally, beginning of chapter 31, Jacob and his wives, Rachel and Leah, agree with Jacob. They all finally agree on something together that Jacob has been faithful to their father Laban for 20 years, fulfilling his two vows, and now God's calling them to leave for Jacob's homeland. So Jacob is justified in God's eyes as God is the one who's calling them back from exile. God's calling them back. And this dysfunctional, binge-worthy Netflix family we've been calling them is finally beginning to shine with steps of obedient faith. So we pick up in verse 17 today of chapter 31 where a major conflict is brewing. So let's start with the conflict. This is the final showdown between Jacob and his arch nemesis Laban. And Jacob comes out on top in this conflict as the victor, but not because of his own might and strength. God is the protector. God is the vindicator of Jacob and, and the one who's faithful to his promises. And, and these truths begin to prompt this really exemplary obedience on the part of Jacob and his wives. Finally, let's look today at the two parts, the conflict and the covenant we're going to look at. As we look again, we're going to address this topic of Exodus again. An exodus is when you are called out of a, of, of a difficult situation to trust God along the way between two points of reference. That's what an exodus is. Two destinations. When I was a child, young child, I can remember leaving my uncle's house one night in Erie, Pennsylvania. We lived in Cleveland at that time where I was born. And we left Erie, Pennsylvania. I can remember making the two-hour drive at night uh, between Erie uh, and our home in Cleveland, and this incredible blizzard came along as we were driving. Along that Lake Erie, they get nasty weather. It's got its own weather systems. It's such a big lake. And I-90 is that road that runs all along Lake Erie, and it's notorious for horrible storms. And I can remember being a little child between the two places, without a home, right, without much of anything in the car, and, and seeing other cars slide off the road and get stuck in the snow, in the ditch, and, and being out on that place between the two destinations. It's a horrible feeling, especially as a child. But maybe for you, it was hey, the drive up 26 to Mount Hood. Sorry, my mic is doing something today. The drive up uh, 26 to Mount Hood in a storm, or out uh, on 84 during a, a, a torrential downpour. But we all know that feeling of being stuck between two places and the anxiety it causes. Not just physical drives, but crises in life between two jobs, going from home to home, loss of someone in life, the potential for worry, the potential for shutdown or meltdown or division in the camp. What do you do? How do you trust God when he orchestrates an exodus in your life? Or for his people, what do you do? Or your personal life, conflicts that come up. How do we cope with that loss or uncertainty in conflict or when everything looks to be crumbling around us in conflict? This is a big conflict here. Well, Jacob's on the run and his uh, with his family. And he's not just stuck on I-90 in a blizzard. He's got this angry father-in-law and his army on his tail. So let's look at the conflict by looking first at this. Let's look at the pursuit of Jacob by Laban and see that it is a divinely orchestrated call 
for Jacob and his family to obedience and faith. This is something God is doing. So on the third day, Laban and his sons and others begin to pursue Jacob who's fled and they follow him closely, the story said. You probably heard that in there. And they pursue him. This is all the language, Hebrew language, of a military pursuit. Just think about movies. Aren't some of the best movies you've ever watched, or at least the most intense, in which the premise is a, is a, is a hot pursuit? Remember the old uh, Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive? Remember that one? Yeah, that was a good one, where the innocent Harrison Ford is being pr- pursued hotly pursued by the Tommy Lee Jones character. So good, wasn't it? So tense. He's chasing him. Uh, this is kind of what we're looking at here. It's kind of the story. In fact, Jacob says to Laban in verse 36, what's my sin? Why have you hotly pursued me? These two men, they're not friendly. They're not even frenemies. They're, 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 they're enemies. They're enemies. And now a band of men is set on violence. We got this military language there in the text. And on vengeance and and hotly pursuing. This is God's chosen family. This is his people. And we're meant to, to not forget that in the midst of this, that God did this. God did this. Yes, of course, Laban's responsible for his actions. And so were Jacob and the sisters and all the the mess they've all caused. But God orchestrated this conflict moment for his people. Remember, God appeared to Jacob in a dream and said, Arise, it's time. Go back to your homeland. Get on an exodus. The land I promised you, the land of your father Isaac. So, So this orchestration, this conflict is from God. I'm convinced that as Christians, we've lost sight of the fact that God is working even in the blizzard on I-90 or through the snow on Route 26. God is, is using even your most challenging conflicts for his greater purposes. Do you believe that, though? Or do we live that way when we're in the midst of them? Do, do you think that way? Because... We need to think that way. We, we need to reorient our hearts and our minds as Jacob has been to this truth. And, and when we do, do you know what it does? It transforms how we go through, how you go through your own exodus. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, by an exodus, right? By a blizzard on I-90, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. So how to live in the midst of an exodus. Conform your mind to it. The mind is the battlefield on which the outcome really floods the heart. They're connected. Who you are internally in your mind and thoughts, they're interwoven and they're dependent upon and they rise and fall together. So let's look a bit with our minds, with our hearts, at the specifics here in this conflict and and the actions of these individuals. Let's start with Jacob and Rachel. A few subpoints under this first point. Jacob's obedience now, and Rachel's theft even, they are used by God to showcase God's protection and provision. You can say here, as you look 
at Jacob and Rachel, they're like as thick as thieves in this story. You heard that phrase before? As thick as thieves together. Rachel said to have stolen her father's gods. These would have been small statue idol, uh, idols, obviously small because she could put them in a camel saddle. And the text, in the text where it says Jacob tricked Laban, it actually says he stole his heart. So Rachel stole the gods, and every time it says tricked, it's really saying Jacob stole Laban's heart. There's a solidarity of purpose for men to see between this husband and wife. To begin, to go out, to begin as a new family, a, a new people, two distinct people groups now. As you catch even Laban now, all of a sudden he's Laban the Aramean. There's a distance being formed between God's people and the people that are leaving. There's deliberate obedience here by Jacob. He arises, the text says, and his wife, she complicates matters for sure, doesn't she, <laughs> with this theft. But it guarantees there's no going back. We don't know why she took them. Maybe they were valuable. Maybe she thought there was some protection still in those. Maybe she was going to use it as a bargaining tool. We don't know exactly know why. But God comes to the Laban, the Aramean, at night, and he says, look at verse 24 with me. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This is a conflict now that's placing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people, in great danger and potential violence and death. And Rachel even increases the likelihood of their death with, with her theft. But God is using the moment as we see it, as we read it, as we know, he's using it for both the sake of Jacob and Rachel and for the people of God as Moses wrote it and they read it and for us as we hear it today to remind us that God is the one who will protect and provide for his people. God is the one who will oversee your life who will protect you, who will provide for you in the midst of hostile relationships in your life, as they have here. In our obedience, when we obey, as, as Jacob does, we open a door in some ways for God to, to act and to show us his protection and, and provision as we go out trusting him, as we go out to the hard place, as we have the hard conversation where there's a break in relationship. We trust him to provide and act in those moments as we obey. Because obedience, as you know, many times obedience involves doing the harder thing. We know it as a church, don't we? We're still wearing masks. It's the harder thing. Obedience is always the harder thing. And in, in my conversations with some people, even in our church, they said, you know what? I never thought about that. We've chosen to do the harder thing. And they said, well, maybe that meant Maybe it was the right thing. Obedience is the harder thing, but when we trust that God goes with us in it, like Jacob did when he obeyed, he shows up that he will protect and he will provide. And, and you add to that, when, we, when doing the harder thing, don't you always feel our greater need for God's strength? Isn't that when you see, you know what, I don't have what it takes? What it does is it presents the stage for him to act upon as Jacob obeys. 
And God here, how does he protect? He prohibits Laban from intervening through this, this dream. But I, I kind of wonder, did, did Laban hear God correctly? Don't say anything, good or bad, because Laban actually says most of everything in this whole story, doesn't he? <laughs> Jacob's got just a couple words. I don't know what happened between Laban and God after this, or if he thought that was crossing the boundary line or not, but Laban's mouth is running almost the whole time, isn't it? We see a medal, and Laban comes out to confront his family, and the, the tension is con, uh, increasing. But here's the point. When we're living comfortably at home, as, as Jacob was with his family, with Laban, growing in wealth and growing in, in, in family, they didn't see their great need of God. It was out in the conflict, their family exodus that they're going on that God would provide. You see, God's only as big as the, the, the current environment they were living in. Sure, it was challenging to live with Laban. It was. But it was nothing like leaving the security behind to attempt to return back home to where he was exiled from. You see, it's on the exodus in your life. It's out in the desert places where God showcases the fact that he's not just the God of your safety and your security of the home, but he's also the God out there, out there outside the safety of these walls, outside the safety of your, your walls at home. Out there, he, when you're on the exodus, he proves that I'm the God of the whole world. Not just Laban's little compound, not just Canaan where you're going back to, but the in-between as well. I'm the God of the whole world. It's one thing to say you trust God and you believe God when you're in Jerusalem and you can see the temple you can smell the smell of the sacrificing animals, the roasting sacrifices. It's quite another to say it wandering around or in Babylon, isn't it? It's a quite another experience or an exile. But that's who we are. That's who you are. We are strangers. We are exiles. That's how the Bible describes us. We're pilgrims would be another way to put it. And increasingly, it's feeling like it more and more and more. But watch out because God will show himself big in our conflicts. That's what he's doing here for Jacob out in between the two places of safety. We'll come back to Jacob and family, but let's talk a little more about Laban. And we'll come back to Rachel with these stolen gods too. Laban is used by God too. His own chronic self-interest much like J uh, Jacob's uh, chronic self-sufficiency in earlier chapters, Laban's chronic self-interest is used by God too to promote his, that's God, and Jacob's interest now. We enter into the heart of this conflict and Laban's chronic self-interest and how that self-interest actually works in Jacob's favor. And, and God's interest. Remember, Laban has a murderous intent. This is his, his son-in-law, his, his daughters, his, his grandchildren. And now he's hunting them down. If you're woken up in the morning and just kind of like felt like it was someone else's life. In a fog. Not sure what's going to happen or how the day will go. 
Have you ever read Kafka's Metamorphosis? I haven't either. But I do know something about the story, and you probably do a little bit too. The story about a man named Gregor who wakes up in the morning and, and, and realizes he's been transformed, you know what, into a bug. Yeah, you probably heard that before. He wakes up in the morning and he realizes he's been transformed into a bug in the story like a giant cockroach laying in bed. It's gross, but that's the story. The story is about his family's uh, increasingly hostile attitude towards him as they don't really know what to do with him and the inability to cope with what he's become. And it also follows his inability to cope with waking up like he's in someone else's life. A bug. There's some connection there for us. I know many of us are feeling kind of like that right now, like we've woken up in someone else's life. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. You feel like you are thought of as a fool for believing. Maybe your own kids look at you and say, why do you still believe that stuff? Or maybe you feel like we've woken up next to Laban's camp like Jacob did on this morning. He woke up and guess who was there? Hello. <laughs> hey, Laban. And there are murderous intentions. For many, it feels like we've woken up in, in a bad dream. Some of us in our own nation, we feel like we've woken up in a bad dream. There's fear, nostalgia for a better time. The idea is that, you know, we used to kind of run things around here, but not anymore. Which there's some truth to, as Christianity's influence in the, is waning in the Western world. No argument there. It is. But there is so much fear-mongering out there. So much fear-mongering out there. People telling you it's, it's never been this bad. It's never been this bad. And it's just inevitable. This is the end of the world. It's happening in the church. It's never been this bad. This is it. This is, uh, it's all happening. It's all going to fall apart. We're never going to have what we had. That, that's just out there. And it, it's in the church too, as I said. So much fear-mongering. Well, it gets views, doesn't it? And likes and attention. It's kind of the news cycle, fear-mongering too. But if God can use the pursuit of Laban, of his people that had murderous intent, I ask you, be, be, be critically mindful when listening. Even to Christians who highlight the crisis more than the God of the crisis. Focus on the God of the crisis. Or who highlight the exodus itself more than the answer in Jesus. Guess what? I don't know when the end is. And anybody who else who's telling you doesn't know either. We don't know. It could be 2,000 more years. It could be 10,000 more years. That doesn't mean we want to be passive and not seek and look and, and understand our world. But even if it is the worst time ever for us, God has a plan. Look at Laban hotly pursuing Jacob. They're in the middle of nowhere. He's got no protection. 
And it's when you and I lose the comforts of home out on the exodus, we'll find God will be as big as our environment. And the environment's changing, isn't it? Rapidly, rapidly, almost daily it feels like it. What a long night for Jacob and his family. As Laban encamped next to them, the army encamped near Jacob, I wonder if he slept that night. (laughs) And in the morning, it was time for the hard conversation. And Laban's words ring so hollow, don't they? Did you hear it as Bob read them? Jacob, how could you be so foolish? You take my daughters and my children away from me. I just wanted to throw you a big party. <laughs> right, yeah, somebody said, yeah, right. A big party, I want to just give you all kisses and hugs. I mean, that's the way he should have responded, actually. But we know it's a bit hypocritical in Laban. A loving father would respond this way. How could you take my family and kids without letting me say goodbye? But he goes on. You've repaid me by stealing my gods. It's hollow. It's deceptive. He makes Jacob out to be the villain here as if, if Jacob was, as if Jacob was the one they needed to keep an eye on. But we already know Laban's character, don't we? It's just uh, more self-interest, chronic self-interest on Laban's part. Remember the golden goose? Jacob is gone. He's let the golden goose get away. And with him, all of God's blessing that came through Jacob to Laban. It's really about money for Laban. And Jacob responds to Laban's accusations with this this righteous indignation. He protests that I was right to leave secretly, which we know to be true, and that he actually does know nothing of the household gods, but Laban can't leave it alone, can he? He just can't leave it alone. And I think it is many times in our chronic self-interest that we just push a bit more, don't we? Uh, just a bit. We just can't leave it well enough alone, and Laban can't either. Did you catch what Jacob has done there? He's just unknowingly placed his wife, Rachel, under the penalty of death because she does have the gods, doesn't she? As we get to know and see, she has the idols, but here's what we're going to see. God vindicates those he set his love upon. He vindicates them. He comes through For Jacob and Rachel here, the chosen family, as there's lies and these idols and justice ultimately that happens. God vindicates. And I think this is why we as a church, we can't fall into this um, church uh, that is us versus them mentality that's growing increasingly popular. We, can't, we also can't infuse, refuse to engage with those different than us, those outside the church. And we can engage, actually, with a realistic hopefulness because God vindicates his people always. Maybe not in the here and now. And how many martyrs have gone to the, the stake in the history of the church? They weren't vindicated in this life, but they will be in the life to come. Remember, he's the God of out there, too. Not just in here, not just in your home. He's the God of out there, everywhere. That's what the Exodus shows us. And he always vindicates those he set his love upon. And Laban's ready, as I said, to take up the challenge to look for the idols. Why doesn't he look in the camel saddle? Seems so obvious. He looks everywhere else. He gropes around everywhere else. He comes into the tent and Rachel responds. Look at verse 35. 
She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Here's what we're meant to see. In the ancient culture, in the Hebrew scriptures, men or women who had some sort of fluid or discharge coming from their body, that's men too, so not just women, they were considered ceremoniously unclean for worship, to interact with. So to touch a man or woman in this state was to make someone unclean. And Leviticus even says in these states, don't go to the tabernacle, don't go to the temple. And Rachel pretends to be menstruating here. That's what she says. And so her father's thought would have been, well, surely, surely she wouldn't put the idols under herself when she's menstruating. That would be a defiling and a great offense of our gods. And that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. God is plundering the idols of Laban, even as he does to the Egyptians in that other later exodus. Do you see that connection there? The point is that our idols are as unclean as they can be. They're worthless and unclean as, as Rachel sits upon them and says she has the way of women. He, he, he doesn't check under the camel bag because in his mind there's no way she would do that. That's so disrespectful to do to the household gods. They're worthless and unclean. Even when good things in our life become God things to us, they are worthless compared to God who will vindicate us. Only God can deliver, preserve, protect his people. Nothing else can substitute, not even family. We see how that went with Leah, right? Remember that story? Not friends, not nation, not career, not health, not money, not religious activity. Nothing can substitute for Jesus. Not a thing can take his place. Nothing can vindicate a person either but God. Not any one of those idols that looks really good and shiny. Nothing. Well, Jacob responds in vindication. He is vindicated after the idols have not been found. What is it? The text says he berates Laban. That's a strong word. It's like the language of a courtroom. He just kind of attacks with his accusing case. I served you faithfully, Laban. And you've cheated me over and over and over again, your lies are innumerable, Laban. And now God has vindicated me. Look at verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, that's just another way of referring to God, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, probably even without his daughters and family. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. There's his victory. And Laban knows it. The man of God has been vindicated in his obedience, vindicated in his faithful living. And Laban responds with these empty words, and he tries to just cover it up in embarrassment. Let's look at it. It's the covenant. He tries to cover it. There's this strange back and forth that now takes place in the last section of this story. Strange back and forth about the rock that Jacob sets up and the, the heap that Laban sets up. 
But this isn't so strange to us. We do similar things in our life to benchmark momentous occasions, don't we? We actually at our home even have a little jar we call the rock jar. And on that jar, throughout the course of our marriage and our life, we've taken stones, think about that, and we've written little things on them in Sharpie to put in this jar and made basically a heap of stones so we can go back from time to time and pick them out and see and remember, oh yeah, remember when God did that? That's kind of what they're doing here. We do similar things like that. Or you, you celebrate an anniversary or a, a day of sobriety people do or all kinds of different things we benchmark in our life. A graduation, a marriage, even death. We set things up to formally remember them. So they do this, this strange back and forth, the one rock, the heap, two enemies in this covenant have agreed to remain apart. But Jacob doesn't really need this covenant, does he? I mean, he doesn't need it even. He's already been protected by Laban. So this formal agreement, which is what a covenant is, he doesn't really need it, but he does it anyways and knows it's going to keep Laban away from him, so he agrees. Let's look at this. One stone, one God, and one deliverance. I close by seeing this sure and certain pattern of the Lord that's in this covenant. This is an about face for Laban. Like a, was that a 180, I guess? He goes from this hot pursuit of Jacob to this kind of capitulation, a, a, a concession. And we have a bunch of twos and, and ones here. Two different stone memorials, a stone and then a heap. Two meals that take place. Two names for the memorials. Two different deities named. And now, guess what? Two new people groups come out of this covenant. Jacob, did you see? Jacob sets up one stone. Why? One stone. One true God. While Laban sets up this, this, this heap of sto stones. Jacob, did you see, makes his oath by the one true God of his father, Abraham and Isaac. While Laban mentions a few just to cover his basis, I think. <laughs> Look at verses 53 and 54. Jacob says, the God, or no, this is Laban speaking, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Do you see the transformation we've seen in this man's life? Yes, over 20 years, but an incredible transformation. Jacob's gone from the heel grabber. Remember when he was born? Back a bunch of weeks now, the heel grabber. The one who, who was interested in stealing the birthright and the blessing to becoming a man of faith who trusts God. A man who's even willing to go out on an exodus out of Mesopotamia. A man who's now crediting God with his protection. God with his provision, his deliverance. God is his everything. Even after God had exposed him to the scoundrel Laban, who switched wives on his wedding night, remember? Changed his wage 10 times, Jacob says. Refused him over and over. Lied to him innumerable times. And now was hunting him down for his life. And Jacob still trusts God. Even though God orchestrated the whole thing. 
So Laban's given a quick exit. He arises and he leaves after a kiss goodbye. And Jacob's left here, a man of faith, trusting in the one true God and the one deliverance, which becomes the sure pattern throughout all the Bible. A sure pattern. The pattern of, of slavery, of bondage, to exodus, to living in the promised land. Because that, that's the pattern we're seeing in Jacob's life. We're going to close by looking at some of these charts you got in there. Here's the pattern we see. It begins for Jacob in this house of slavery, house of bondage, a, a crisis, a conflict is, is coming. And it's being transformed now, as we've seen in Jacob's life, through his exodus. And remember the exodus. On this exodus, what happens? We lose the comforts of home, like Jacob has, like we are in some ways in our culture today. And we begin to live as exiles and as pilgrims, but that's actually the way God wants us to live. That's how we are now. We live as pilgrims on an exodus from this world to the true God, our true home God is bringing us to at the end of time. But it's on this exodus that God shows himself bigger than our comfortable environment that he's pulled us out of. Before the exile, everyone outside of there is just an enemy and the other and everything's falling apart out there. But what happens, you realize on the exodus from point A to point B that God is the God of out there too, the entire world. He's the God of the ends of the earth. But you have to be brought to a place of weakness first, like Paul was, like the apostles were, a place of weakness along the road of the Exodus. Remember, it's one thing to know God is God in Jerusalem. But it's quite another when he's taking you through a desert, a trial, a conflict, or Babylon. As we said, that's the process the Western church is in now. We haven't been geographically uh, exiled, but spiritually marginalized. But we have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. He's with us on the exodus. So don't listen to the fear mongers out there. Don't be tempted to believe that God has nothing to do with the exodus. Don't be tempted to believe that God has nothing to do with all the, the secularizing we see in our world that's going on or the marginalization of the faith. Most Christians are tempted to say, you know what, God has nothing to do with that. There's no way he's involved with anything that's going on in the world today. We just got to hide, hunker down, and hope he's returning tomorrow with the rapture. That's kind of what happens. That's not how he wants us to live. That is not how he wants you to live. We're out there. We're on the exodus. We're on the journey. Most Christians would say God has got nothing to do with everything that's happening out there. But look at Jacob's life. Did God have something to do with all the trials? Was God orchestrating the exodus the entire time? Did he have a purpose in it? I hope we're all thinking, yes, we see it. We see it. He's active. He's present. He's working in whatever life holds now and in the future for you individually and the future for us corporately as the church around the world. He's working in it. He did it. He's always done it. It's the sure pattern. Why would he change now? So we keep living in faith and obedience in the Exodus because guess where it ends? It ends in the promised land. It ends there. Let's look 
It's the sure pattern of the Bible. Jacob, in the house of slavery, in bondage. Israel, in Egypt, to be brought out to the promised land. Israel there in their own real exodus. It's a sure pattern. Do you know, at the end of Genesis, we'll get there in 2022, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is in Egypt with his whole family now. They're all there. They have to leave the promised land again because of famine. But Joseph, on his deathbed, says this. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and there's our man, to Jacob. Even Joseph now, in bondage, they're, they're in Egypt now, kicked out of the promise or left the promised land again. What does he do? Joseph trusts the sure pattern of God's working over and over. And Moses too. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day, and here's our language of slavery where it came from, this day in which you came out from Egypt, the fulfillment of Joseph's thoughts, out of the house of slavery, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you from this place. Jacob, Israel. So do you think we're in there too? You better believe it. Us too. Us too. We're born in sin and bondage, aren't we? Spiritually dead. And we're taken on an exodus through repentance and, and, and faith in Christ to be brought to worship in the promised land too someday. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. It's the sure pattern of your life if you're following Christ. How do we know it? How do we know? Because sometimes doesn't it feel that we're going to be stuck in Exodus forever? And doesn't it feel like when you're in the middle of a trial, a season, a challenge, a loss, like it's just never going to end. It's always going to be this way. I, that's what I do. It's always going to be this way. It's never going to change. I'm always going to feel this way. Nothing's ever going to get better. It's always just going to be this way. How do we know that's not true? Do you know how? Because our Savior walked the same Exodus pattern before us, but just in reverse. Take a look. He started in a really good place, the promised land. He had eternity forever in perfect fellowship with the Heavenly Father. He was in the good place. He didn't need to leave it. He was in the good place. But he left that behind coming that way. He left that behind. His exodus was what? Coming to earth, into time and space, taking on the, the constraints of a physical body. But on his exodus, at least earthly, there was no silver lining for him. We're freed from bondage. Where did his end? Bondage. He took on our sin. He took on your shame. He took on your guilt. And he died on a cross. Where? Out in the desert. Out there. He was left out there for you. Exodus in the opposite direction. He was led to the house of slavery so you could be freed from it. It's the reverse of the exodus that Jesus goes on. So we can have a true exodus. So Jacob can trust that God's going to be there. So Israelites are delivered by God. So we are brought from sin and death 
to life. And how do we know we'll be freed? Resurrection. Resurrection. He didn't stay dead. He burst out of the tomb. That means our exodus won't last forever. It will not last forever. Resurrection is coming someday. We do know the end of the story. He was led that way so we could be freed. But there's a process on the exodus of being conformed to this sure pattern. As we look at Romans 12 again, don't be conformed to the thinking of this world today. And we know what that is. It's, all, it's the worst it's ever been. Is there any hope? All things seem to be lost. Don't be conformed to that. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know the sure pattern. We've gone through it in the life of Jacob and Israel and looked at it in Jesus. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing on the exodus in the hard place, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. It's the sure pattern. One rock, one God, one deliverance. One sure pattern. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the rock. <laughs> you are the one true rock upon whom we build our life, our faith, our hope, our deliverance, our freedom from our own exodus. So Jesus, enter into our lives, into our hearts and minds, into the places where we doubt that you will show up on the exodus that we're on, personally, corporately, and give us the certainty that the one sure pattern is true because you walked the exodus in reverse for us and showed us that it all is true in your resurrection. Give us hope today. Let us live in obedience as well as Jacob began to when he trusted you. It's in Christ's name, amen.